Welcome back to a little more conversation. It has been a record-breaking, horrifying, crazy week, and uh, Donald Trump continues to outdo himself with his craziness. We're watching him unravel right in front of us, and it's not pretty. He finally was dumb enough and contracted COVID, and now he's made it his mission to spread it to other people. He thinks he has come up with a vaccine, a cure. He is the quintessential lunatic con artist criminal egomaniac. I think I used all the words I wanted to use there. And in politically comical news, a fly landed on Pence's head during the debate, which is very telling about this whole administration because... Flies tend to land on crap, and that's the only thing that this administration can dish out to American people is crap. So the irony, I personally found it amusing. I know many other people did as well. But let's turn from that. I hope you voted if you can vote early, and I hope to God you voted for Biden. My guess is if you have sense enough to uh, agree with the information and the the people that we cover in this podcast, the Americans that we admire, that that you would know we are on the edge and we need to vote for Biden. So if you did, awesome, great. Please try to convince somebody who is on the fence for I don't know what reason they would be. But don't give up on presenting the facts. Just do your best. And vote early if you can. It felt really good just just to drop off my ballot at the elector's office in person and get it done. It, It was a relief. It kind of felt like, I don't know, it kind of felt like um, kind of punching back at Trump when all we could do previously was get annoyed and want to scream at the TV. (laughs) And that you know, that's not going to remove him from office. So anyway, so this, this episode is going to get us focused on what we love about America, leaders that we admire, families we look up to, relationships between American families, and things that give us hope, things that inspire us. So there's a book that my dad has, and it's by Joe Biden, and it's called Promise Me, Dad, A Year of Hope, Hardship, and Purpose. And it kind of sounds like this year, only this year it would be a year of hardship, hardship, hopefully some hope, and maybe some purpose later on. So anyway, I know I'm kind of being sarcastic here, just trying to stifle some of the weirdness that's going on. So it's kind of coming out funny, but I'm going to read this book for the first time, and I'm going to read it to you, and we'll experience it together. And I hear it's a really good one. I hear it's uh, it's definitely a tearjerker, so have that ready. So here we go. Chapter 1, Biden Family Thanksgiving. The days were getting shorter, so the light in the sky had started to fall away when the gate to our temporary home swung open and our motorcade edged beyond the fencing that surrounded the United States Naval Observatory in Washington, D.C. We were riding from our official residence at the observatory to Andrews Air Force Base, 
where my children and grandchildren were already gathering. Jill and I were anxious to be with them for our annual Thanksgiving trip. Family had been an essential escape in the five and a half years I had been vice president. Being with them was like flying in the eye of a storm, a reminder of the natural ease and rhythms of our previous life, and of the calm to come when my time in office was done. The job had been an incredible adventure, but there were so many things Jill and I missed from life before the vice presidency. We missed our home in Wilmington. We missed the chance to be alone in a car on a long drive where we could talk with abandon. We missed having command over our own schedule and our own movements. Vacations, holidays, and celebrations with family had become the respites that restored some sense of equilibrium. And the rest of our family seemed to need these breaks as much as Jill and I did. We had all been together just a few months earlier for our annual summer trip to one of the national parks. But five days of hiking, whitewater rafting, and long, loud dinners in the Tetons had apparently not been enough for the grown-ups. Jill and I were in our cabin packing for departure the last day when there was a knock at the door. It was our son, Hunter. He knew Jill and I were going alone to the beach for a four-day retreat. But he wondered if maybe, because he and his wife had some free time, they might tag along. We said, of course. Within a few minutes, our other son, Bo, knocked on the door. His in-laws had agreed to watch the children. Maybe we wouldn't mind if he and his wife joined us at the beach on Long Island? We said, of course. I suspect there are parents who might feel put upon when asked to give up their alone time. I regarded these requests as the fruits of a life well lived. Our grown children actually wanted to be with us. So we had had another wonderful four days at the beach together in August. But by November, there was also a perceptible urgency to this need for togetherness that was a bit disquieting. And I was very mindful of it when Jill and I set out for our yearly escape to Nantucket for another Biden family Thanksgiving. We passed through the gates of the observatory, and I felt our government-required armored limousine make its customary gentle pivot onto Massachusetts Avenue, where local traffic had been halted to clear the path for our journey. I glanced at the squat, standing digital clock at the top of the driveway, as I had maybe a thousand times since we had moved into the official residence. Red numbers glowed, ticking away in metronomic perfection. 5-11-42, This was the nation's precise time, which was generated less than a hundred yards away by the U.S. Naval Observatory Master Clock. Precise time, synchronized to the millisecond, had been deemed an operational imperative by the Department of Defense, which had troops and bases in locations around the globe. 51150, 5 5 5 5 5 5 5 5 5 5 5 5 5 5 5 5 5 5 5 5 5 5 5 5 5 5 5 5 5 5 5 5 5 5 5 5 5 5 5 5 5 5 5 5 5 5 5 5 
with an abrupt force that pushed me back into the soft leather seats. The clock was behind us in a flash, out of sight, but still marking the time as it melted away. 5.11.58, The motorcade arced toward the southeast, down one side of the circle, around the observatory, and we could see the lights of the official residence as they flashed through leafless trees. I was happy to say goodbye to the house for a few days. Our departure meant that many of the naval enlisted aides who looked after us were free to spend the entire holiday with their own families. The procession gained speed once we hit the parkway, and our motorcycle escorts nudged aside other travelers. The motorcade traced the southern edge of Washington within sight of the monuments and public buildings. Arlington National Cemetery, the Lincoln Memorial, the Washington Monument. With the White House in the distance beyond, beyond it, the Jefferson Memorial, the United States Capitol. I had served in elective office in this city continuously since 1973, 36 years as a senator and six as vice president, but I had not grown indifferent to the beauty and the import of these towering landmarks, which were now hallowed in a glow of soft light. I still viewed these sturdy marble structures as representatives of our ideals, our hopes, and our dreams. My working life in Washington had given me a sense of pride and accomplishment from the day I arrived, and that feeling had not dimmed after almost 42 years. The truth was, on November 25, 2014, I was as excited and energized by my work as I had been at any time in my career, though my current office was, it must be admitted, a truly odd job. There is a strange and singular elasticity to the responsibilities of a vice president. As a strictly con constitutional matter, the holder of the office has very little power. He or she is charged with breaking a tie vote in the Senate, which I had not been called to do in nearly six years, and waiting around to take over if the president is somehow disabled. A previous occupant was famously quoted as saying that the office is, quote, not worth a bucket of warm spit, end quote. That's the expurgitated version. He did not say spit. <laughs> the actual power of the office is reflective. It depends almost entirely on the trust and confidence of the president. Barack Obama had handed me big things to run from the beginning of our first term, and once he assigned me to oversee the Recovery Act of 2009, or budget negotiations with Senator Mitch McConnell, or diplomatic relations with Iraq, he did not look over my shoulder. I believe I did my job well enough to earn and keep his trust. He sought my advice as much as ever at the end of 2014 and seemed to value it, which meant there were days when I felt that I had it in my power to help bend the course of history ever so slightly for the better. And somewhere in the motorcade that evening, as we sped through the streets of Washington, 
was a car carrying the vice presidential military aide who was in possession of the, quote, nuclear football, which had to be within my reach at all times. I was one of only a handful of people who had control of the codes that could launch a nuclear strike on almost any target on the planet. So a reminder of the grave responsibilities of the office and the trust reposed in me was there at all times, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. But in spite of all that, in spite of position and standing, I was incapable of doing the thing I most wanted to do heading into that holiday week, to slow down that master clock at the top of my driveway, to make those red ticking numbers hesitate, to give myself, my family, and most important, my older son, a little extra breathing room. I wanted the power to cheat time. The Biden tradition of Thanksgiving on Nantucket started as an act of diplomacy back in 1975. I was a first-term senator and a single father of two boys. Bo was six years old and Hunter just five, and Jill Jacobs and I had started to talk seriously about a future together. Thanksgiving was the first holiday for Jill and me together, and we had too many invitations. My parents wanted us to spend the day with them in Wilmington. Jill's parents wanted us in Willow Grove, Pennsylvania. The parents of my first wife, who had died along with my baby daughter in a car accident a few years earlier, wanted us to bring their grandsons to upstate New York and spend the long weekend with them. No matter which family we chose, we were going to hurt somebody's feelings, which was the last thing either Jill or I wanted to do. I was in my Senate office one day that fall, explaining this predicament to my chief of staff, and he said, what you need is a nuclear Thanksgiving, meaning the nuclear family alone. Only Wes Barthelms was a Boston guy, so what he actually said was nuclear Thanksgiving. I wasn't sure what exactly he was trying to say until he explained it might be easiest on everybody if the four of us, me and Jill, Bo and Hunt, went away alone. He suggested the island of Nantucket, which was an hour by ferry south of Cape Cod. Neither Jill nor I had ever been there, but we decided to go ahead and make an adventure of it. We filled my Jeep Wagoneer with 57 cents a gallon gas and piled the boys and the dog into the back seat for what was likely to be a six-hour ride to the ferry in Hyannis, Massachusetts. Now, six hours is a long time for two young boys to be trapped in the back seat of a moving car, but Jill was already proving herself a resourceful caregiver. She had picked up every toy catalog and clothing catalog she could find, and when Bo and Hunt started to get restless, she tossed the catalogs into the back seat. The three of them spent hours leafing through the pages, and the boys started making and refining their wish lists for Christmas gifts so they could have something to send to Santa Claus up at the North Pole. Jill told them to take their time and make sure to get it right. There was no rush. Nantucket turned out to be 
worth it once we finally got there, eight hours after we left our house in Wilmington. It was chilly on the little island at the end of November, but you could smell the tangy salt air of the Atlantic. The island had emptied for the season, so we had much of the place to ourselves. Most of the restaurants and many of the shops were shuttered. The downtown was tiny, maybe five square blocks, but we spent hours there, casing the storefronts and going inside the ones that were open to look around. I told the boys I would buy each of them a single gift on that trip, whatever they wanted, within reason. They took their time to look around. Bo especially liked Murray's Toggery Shop, home of the famous Nantucket Reds. The cotton pants were designed to fade to a soft, dusty rose. Hunt fell for the Knobby Clothes Shop, where the owner made a fuss over him. We had Thanksgiving dinner at the Jared Coffin House, a 130-year-old inn built back when Nantucket was a commercial center of the whaling industry. And then we stayed around afterward to sit by the fireplace and play checkers. The next day, we had lunch at a restaurant called the Brotherhood of Thieves, went to the little movie house in town, tossed a football on the beach, and drove back into town to watch the annual lighting of the Christmas tree. We took scouting drives around the island, and whenever we passed a radio transmission tower with a big red light on top, I'd warn the boys to get down in the back seat so the red-eyed monster couldn't see them. We had such a good time that we even went to check out a little salt box house that stood above the dunes at Sconset Beach. The asking price was too rich for a senator's salary in 1975, but the four of us had our picture taken on the porch of the house beneath a carved wood sign that read Forever Wild. On the drive back to Delaware, I was already thinking about a return trip the next year. Jill and I got married a year and a half later, and our daughter Ashley was born four years after that. And time seemed to move faster. Bo and Hunt graduated high school, then college, then law school. Hunt married Kathleen in 1993, and they had three daughters. Bo married Hallie in 2002, and they had a daughter, then a son. Jill and I were no longer just mom and dad. We were Nana and Pop. Ashley finished graduate school and married Howard. And every year, even as the family grew, we spent Thanksgiving on Nantucket, or Nanatucket, as our grandchildren took to calling it, even when they were old enough to know better. I was invariably in trouble with my grandchildren at the close of business. Pop only has two! Again! There was only one little hitch in the great Christmas list endeavor, and that was my becoming vice president in 2009. The entire clan flew together to Nantucket that year on Air Force Two, which struck me as a pretty welcome change after all those hours piloting a car up Interstate 95 during one of the busiest travel weeks of the year, and one that I thought would delight the grandkids especially. But it's not much more than an hour in the air from Andrews Air Force Base to Nantucket Memorial Airport which turns out to be an interval of time wholly insufficient for catalog browsing. 
So on the flight back, after the vacation was over and that year's Christmas lists were safely in Jill's hands, my grandchildren filed into my private cabin on Air Force Two en masse from 15-year-old Naomi to 3-year-old Hunter. They had all talked it over, and the finding was unanimous. This new mode of travel just wasn't going to work for them. Pop, Naomi spoke for the group. Can we drive again next year? I suspect the head of my Secret Service detail, in weighing this consideration against security concerns, was not likely to be swayed by the power of the Christmas list argument, no matter how heartfelt. Everybody in the family knew the drill by November 2014. This trip would mark our sixth flight to Nantucket on Air Force Two. We usually drove out to Andrews in separate cars and met on the tarmac. The rest of the family was already there when Jill and I pulled up after our 25-minute ride to the airbase. Our German shepherd jumped out of the car and scurried across the tarmac. No leash, no guide. This was old hat to champ. He went right up the stairs and onto the plane. The staircase leading to the entry door of Air Force Two is just wide enough for two people, and there are about 20 steps. I kept an eye on Bo as he made his way up the left side of the staircase. My older son was a little thinner than when I had seen him last, but I thought maybe he had regained some of the strength he had lost in his right arm and his right leg a few months earlier. Getting up those stairs was a struggle, but he insisted on doing it himself. He was fine, he kept saying. In fact, I had not heard him complain once since his diagnosis 15 months earlier. It's all good, he would say, over and over, getting better every day. I was under strict orders never to betray worry in front of anybody. Dad, don't look at me sad, Bo had admonished me once when he caught me eyeing him. He had been firm. Dad, Dad, you understand me? Don't look at me like that. Two hours after we boarded Air Force Two, we were at our friend's house on the island, divvying up bedrooms. Primogeniture was a family tradition in the matter of accommodations. Jill and I got to pick first, then Bo and Hallie, then Hunt and Kathleen, then Ashley and Howard, and down through the grandchildren. The White House communications team had already claimed one room in the house. A vice president might leave his office, but the office never left a vice president. The communications staff had wired in a secure telephone line for any emergency or international calls and set up a secure video conference hookup to the White House Situation Room just in case. We had dinner that Tuesday night, two days before Thanksgiving, and afterwards sat around with the grandchildren, who insisted we all play Mafia, a whodunit game that could be played around the dining room table. After the younger ones went to bed, the rest of us sat around telling old family stories. Bo and Hunt would not let me forget the day almost 40 years earlier when I made Bo eat an apple covered in sand after he dropped it, despite having been told not to take it to the beach. And remember when Bo and Ashley dangled a drumstick 
over Hunt's nose, so it would be the first thing he saw when he woke from sleeping off the effects of overeating at the Thanksgiving feast. And remember the first time we jumped the dunes? It was after midnight when Jill and I finally turned in. We were happy. The family was together in a place that had been nothing but a joy to us for almost 40 years. But before we went to sleep, Jill and I talked about trimming our sails a bit on this trip, maybe slowing down the pace of activity on account of Bo, though we knew he would insist that nothing change. All good, he would say. All good. Nobody spoke it aloud, and they didn't have to. But this Thanksgiving felt different, like there was added pressure to just be us. We were fastidious about observing our long-standing rituals. We slept in on Wednesday morning and lazed around, as always, until Nana prodded the group out the door. We drove into town and started the stroll down the same streets and into the same stores we'd visited for almost 40 years. Every member of the family was already in search of the perfect prize. As I had every year, I still bought one gift for each person. We hit the knobby clothes shop first, as always, and the owner heard we were there, as always. Where's Hunt? Sammy yelled, just like he would when my younger son was still a shy eight-year-old and not a grown man with one daughter in college. Then it was off to the watch shop, owned by Spider Wright, a legendary surfer and surfboard designer who had known Bo and Hunt and Ashley since forever, and the sunken ship, a souvenir shop the younger children liked best, and Murray's Toggery Shop. We traveled in a loose pack, with little groups splintering off to go into particular stores. The older grandchildren would take the younger ones in tow. I wanted to stop in at the hub to get my coffee and maybe a newspaper. Ashley and Jill wanted to go to Nantucket Cashmere. Champ was on his own to wander with whatever group showed him the most love. We scouted the shops for hours, cell phones buzzing. You've got to come check this out. My White House physician, Kevin O'Connor, who had started making the trip with us the year before, would shake his head at the browsing extravaganza. It's what? Four or five blocks of stores, he would say. I've been here an hour and I've seen the whole place. What are you doing all that time? But it felt so good to be out in the holiday crowd again, doing something most people take for granted. Our Secret Service detail gave us a wide berth in Nantucket, so there was an illusion of real freedom. For a moment, everything felt all right. Everything seemed normal. Our progress was slowed by people who wanted to get a handshake, or a hug from the Vice President of the United States, or a selfie. And I was not the only draw. Bo Biden was already a rising star in Democratic politics. He was just about to finish his second term as Attorney General of Delaware, and had already stated his intention to run for governor in 2016. His announcement had cleared the field. Nobody back home in Delaware was prepared to challenge Bo in the Democratic Party or in the Democratic primary. He was generally regarded as the most popular politician in the state, more popular than even his father. Delawareans saw in him what I did. Bo Biden, at age 45, 
was Joe Biden 2.0. He had all the best of me, but with the bugs and flaws engineered out. And he had Hunt in his corner as a speechwriter and trusted advisor. I was pretty sure Bo could run for president someday, and with his brother's help, he could win. When Barack and I won re-election back in 2012, I had started thinking really hard about stepping aside after the second term and shifting the family's focus to Bo's political future. I'm not sure when it happened, but somewhere along the way, I had begun to look up to my own sons. They were good and honorable men who shared a belief in public service and had acted on it. Hunt spent the summer after his junior year in college as a member of the Jesuit Volunteer Corps, teaching English to children in Belize. His first year after college, JVC work took him to Portland, Oregon, where he was in charge of an emergency services center in a disadvantaged neighborhood. His first big job after he graduated Yale Law School was as an executive trainee at a big bank in Wilmington, where he was on a fast track. But he came to me one night after just a few years and said he needed to do something more meaningful. So he left that high-paying position to take a job in government. By Thanksgiving of 2014, Hunt was in his third year as chairman of the board of the World Food Program USA. Bo had taken a similar path, propelled by his own steely sense of honor and duty. He had volunteered as a civilian working in the United States Attorney's Office to go to the war zone in Kosovo to help that emerging republic develop its legal system and its courts. He had joined the Delaware Army National Guard at age 34 and insisted on going with his unit when it was deployed to Iraq five years later. But he had to make a firm commitment to the Pentagon that he would take a leave of absence as Attorney General of the state in order to, to devote his full energies to his responsibilities in Iraq. He readily did that. I can't say I was happy about how he went out of his way to put himself in harm's way again, but I was not surprised. I considered reminding him that he had already served in one field of fire, and he might not want to do it again. But I knew him well enough to know that he'd say, I signed up for this, Dad. I can't let my guys down. It's my duty. Bo was also determined to be a good father. There was a story that got passed around by my staff, something that happened on one of our earlier Nantucket trips. Bo and his son Hunter were riding back to the house in one of the cars in the motorcade when Bo decided to make a quick stop at Murray's Toggery to pick up a new pair of Nantucket Reds. Nantucket Reds. His wife Hallie would joke that Bo was too conservative to actually wear the flamboyant Reds, but liked knowing that they were in his closet. When Bo's car peeled off from the main motorcade that morning to detour to Murray's, Little Hunter yelled out from his car seat in the back, Hey driver, you missed your turn! Please stop the car, Bo said to Ethan Rosenwig, who was driving. Ethan was the dean of admissions at Emory Law in Atlanta, but he liked to do volunteer advance work for us when he had free time during the holidays. Ethan had known Bo a long time, and he could tell Bo was disturbed. Hey, Bo, Ethan said. It's no big deal. He didn't mean anything by it. 
but Bo urged him to pull the car over. He wanted this lesson to register with Hunter. Ethan pulled onto the shoulder, and Bo got out and opened the back door so he could talk to his son. Look, Hunter, Bo said, and he was firm. That's Ethan, and he's our friend. You never address somebody as driver. You never address somebody by the job they do. That's not polite, okay? You understand? Love you, buddy. Bo kept to himself our first day in Nantucket. His Secret Service detail had become really good at walling him away. He was easily fatigued and increasingly shy to interact with people. He was losing feeling in his right hand, and it wasn't strong enough for a good firm handshake. And he had been wrestling with a condition called aphasia. Radiation and chemotherapy had done some damage to the part of his brain that controlled the ability to name things. Bo retained all his cognitive capabilities, but he was struggling to recall proper nouns. He was working like hell to win back his strength and to reverse the aphasia. He was going to Philadelphia most days for an hour of physical therapy and occupational therapy, and then an hour of speech therapy, all above and beyond his regular chemo treatments. Ashley would meet him there to keep him company at the therapy sessions while he did strength and stretching exercises, or went through sheets of pictures naming objects. Ashley would take him out for food before he headed off for a day's work as attorney general. He meant to prove to everybody that he could handle this and that he was making progress, and I believed him. The human brain is remarkably agile, and Bo was literally training other areas near his speech centers to take over the naming function. It was slow going, but he never showed frustration. Nobody in the family or among his friends or among his staff at the attorney general's office saw him angry or down. It just took a little patience and a few extra words when he couldn't recall mayor. You know, the guy who runs the city or dinner roll. Uh, past the, you know, the, the brown thing you put butter on. Part of the beauty of the family vacation in Nantucket was the splendid and enforced isolation. The trip had been a no-phone zone all through my years in the Senate. I did no business unless some dire emergency arose, so that my children and my grandchildren had me to themselves. But that was the one tradition that had grown a bit tattered by 2014. As vice president, I was never entirely free of work, even around Thanksgiving. For instance, I had to peel off from the trip to town that Wednesday and get back to the house to take a call on the secure line from Arseny Yatsenyuk, the Prime Minister of Ukraine, who was anxious to fill me in on what had happened in Kiev that day. I had been in that city just four days earlier, and things looked perilous. The movement started by the Revolution of Dignity, a remarkable people's protest that happened on a square in Kiev called the Maiden Nezelizesnosti, was fraying. Ukrainians seemed about to lose their fight for democracy and independence. Russian President Vladimir Putin had used the instability of the unfolding revolution as an opportunity to seize by military force a part of Ukraine called Crimea, and he kept the pressure on. 
He had lately been sending Russian tanks and soldiers across the border to menace other provinces in the eastern part of the country and was threatening to cut off Ukraine's supply of natural gas, which would have badly destabilized the country's already shaky, shaky economy. Ukraine's newly elected democratic government was in real danger of crumbling under the weight of Putin's cynical push. Ukraine's new president and its new prime minister, meanwhile, were having ongoing trust issues. President Petro Poroshenko and Prime Minister Yatsenyuk were from competing parties, and the recent decisions, the recent elections, had been bruising and divisive. Their constituencies remained more invested in scoring political points than in governing. The Poroshenko and Yatsenyuk factions were wasting energy bickering with one another when they should have been creating institutions and security forces capable of defending against Putin. The Ukrainians had still not formed a workable coalition government at the end of November, six months after Poroshenko assumed the presidency. If they didn't get that done soon, it would mean snap elections, and that meant trouble. Putin operatives were sure to pump money into the campaigns of pro-Russia candidates and probably end any hopes for real independence in Ukraine. The European Union and NATO were likely to abandon Ukraine as a hopeless cause, and the country would be pulled back into Russia's toxic orbit. The bravery and sacrifice of so many Ukrainian people in the revolution of dignity would come to nothing. I had spent months exchanging phone calls with both Poroshenko and Yatsenyuk, trying to convince them each separately, to put loyalty to country over loyalty to political party. I had invested two full days in Kiev the previous week trying to make Poroshenko and Yatsenyuk see the danger of their stubborn unwillingness to work together. I was still working the problem on my way out of Kiev on November 22nd, just four days earlier. Yatsenyuk had called me as I was leaving, and I invited him to ride to the airport with me. I liked Arsenyuk. He was a smart, a Ph.D. economist, but no cloistered academic. He was a serious young leader who cared deeply that his home country be a functioning democracy with secure borders. The 40-year-old prime minister also had a streak of idealism I appreciated. And in the limousine ride over to the airport, I appealed to that part of him. Look, I told Yatsenyuk. You have to be with Poroshenko. You have to be a team. You cannot go your separate ways. If new elections are called, it's going to be a disaster. You're going to lose everything, I'm telling you. Arsenia, you've got to step up. You've got to be the big man. You can do this. It's going to be hard, but you can do this. When Yeltsinyuk reached me on the secure line, in Nantucket that afternoon, he had big news, and he wanted me to know first. He told me that the rival parties in Ukraine had just formed a new coalition government. He would remain prime minister, but a key Poroshenko ally, ally would be the speaker of the new parliament. The two men had also agreed on an agenda going forward. I'm keeping my commitment to you, Mr. Vice President, he told me. I felt pretty good at dinner that night with the 13 of us at the table, working through the Christmas lists. 
and knowing that the parties had worked out a new government in Kiev. We got up Thanksgiving morning and did our annual turkey trot, a ten-mile run for anybody who felt up to it, to the other side of the island. I rode the route on a bike with some of the grandchildren. We spent part of the day tossing a football around the beach. I showed young Hunter the bluffs where his father and his uncle used to jump off and catch passes when they were about his age. Bo and Hallie and their kids made sure to get some nice pictures of the four of them together on the beach. And we went over to the little salt box house for our annual photo, but the lot was ringed with yellow police tape. The house was gone. A victim of rising ocean tides that had been washing away three or four feet of the Sconset Bluff every year for the past twenty. Bad storm years might take out ten times that in certain places. Forever wild had finally run out of safe ground and run out of time. It had been swept out into the Atlantic. The only thing left behind was a piece of foundation. We went back to town the day after Thanksgiving, making sure to be at the right spot around dusk to watch the annual lighting of the Nantucket Christmas tree. Bo had proposed to Hallie at the tree lighting in 2001, and they were married at St. Mary's Church, in the heart of downtown Nantucket the next year. Hallie always suspected it was Bo's way of locking them into the Biden family Thanksgivings for all time. And it worked. They were celebrating their 12th anniversary at the end of the week, and Hallie never missed a Thanksgiving. Even the year Bo was stationed in Iraq, she insisted we all keep the tradition and go to Nantucket. While we did our family stroll, I found myself mulling an issue that was beginning to weigh on me. I was getting a lot of questions from a lot of different quarters about running for president in 2016. Even President Obama had surprised me by asking directly about my plans at one of our regular lunches a few weeks earlier. He wanted to know if I had thought about all the things I could do if I didn't run. I could still have an effect, he assured me. I could set up a foundation or a center for foreign policy. I could even do a few things I had never done before like make some money. But have you made up your mind about running? The president asked me, point blank, across the table in a little private space just off the Oval Office. No, I haven't, was all I could say. At some point on the streets of Nantucket that day, I brought up the question of 2016 with my two sons. I had a feeling that they didn't want me to make the run, and I said as much. Bo just looked at me. We've got to talk, Dad, he said. So when we got back to the house that, that evening, the three of us sat down in the kitchen and we talked. I knew there were plenty of good reasons not to run, and uncertainty about Bo's health was at the top. And I really suspected that my sons, whose judgments I had come to value and rely on, did not want me to put the family through the ordeal of a presidential campaign just now. Dad, you've got it all wrong, Bo said, when we settled down in the kitchen in Nantucket. You've got to run. I want you to run, Hunter agreed. We want you to run. The three of us talked for an hour. They wanted to know what I was doing to get ready and when was the right time to announce. There was a strong argument being made by some of my political experts that if I was going to run at all, I should announce right away at the beginning of 2015, 
but I think the three of us all wanted a little more time to see what happened with Bo. When I decided when I decided was not crucial, my sons told me. They just wanted me to know that they were for it. Hunt kept telling me that of all the potential candidates, I was the best prepared and best able to lead the country. But it was the conviction and the intensity in Bo's voice that caught me off guard. At one point, he said it was my obligation to run. My duty. Duty was a word Bo Biden did not use lightly. When we boarded Air Force Two for that trip home that Sunday, everybody seemed happy. The five days had been a success in all ways. Jill had the completed Christmas list stowed away for safekeeping. It had been a great trip. The two of us, Jill and I, arrived back at the Naval Observatory that afternoon and went up the sweeping central staircase to the second floor to settle into the casual living quarters we used when it was just the two of us. It was a small space and somewhat cluttered, but it was our little piece of home inside a residence designed largely for public use. We had furnished the sitting room with leather couches that matched the ones in our library in Wilmington and lined the shelves with our favorite books and family photos. There was a little table off in one corner that served as our dinner table where we ate by candlelight, even in the long light of summer. I sat down on our couch in the one place in the house that felt as though it truly belonged to us to relax and reflect. But there was an image I could not get out of my head. I kept seeing the little forever wild house undermined by the powerful indifference of nature and the inevitability of time, no longer able to hold its ground. I could almost hear the sharp crack as its moorings failed, could envision the tide washing it in and out, pulling at it relentlessly and remorselessly until it was adrift on the water, then swallowed up by the sea. No Thanksgiving would ever be quite the same. I pulled out my diary and started to write. I did have one big item for my own Christmas list that year, but I was keeping it to myself. November 30th, 2014, 7.30 p.m., just home from Nantucket. I pray we have another year together in 2015. Bo. 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 That's the end of chapter one, and I will be reading chapter two in the next episode. One thing I love about Vice President Joe Biden is that he cares about all of us. He's been through suffering, as we will discover more in this book that he wrote. We know that he lost his wife and child in a car accident when he was just a young senator. He knows what loss is. He knows the weight of it. He knows the weight of what we're going through right now. He knows the future concerns, our fears, how tired we are, and how much we need to have a leader to believe in who loves us and believes in us. Empathy is key. Experience is key. And Joe has all of these in spades.